Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. In the next three episodes, I'm going to focus on sharing with you as much history as I can about Algonquin Park's largest body of water, the Great Opiango Lake. Much of the content comes from a now out-of-print 1998 book by S. Bernard Shaw called Lake Opiango, Untold Stories of Algonquin Park's Largest Lake. I'm also, for the first time, going to try to share as much as I know about the indigenous Lake Opiongo experience, and for that I'm depending upon two sources, by Chief Kirby White Duck of the Algonquins of Pickwaganagan, including a 2001 Algonquin Park TED Talk and Chapter 2 in Mike Walton's 2009 Algonquin Park, The Human Impact. As always, I lean heavily on my colleague and friend Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, as well as his 2016 second edition of Spirits of the Little Bonisher, and of course Audrey Saunders' Algonquin Story, and a few Raven articles thrown in for good measure. So to set the stage, in the summer of 2022, I had the opportunity to participate in an immersive Indigenous weekend workshop in Algonquin Park led by Leslie Ann St. Amour, an Algonquin woman, and hosted by the Trip Shed, with Alex Savati as head guide, the canoe trip's objectives were twofold. The first was to spark in-depth conversations about the history of the land that is now Algonquin Park, from the Indigenous Nations' perspective. The second was to brainstorm how to enable meaningful relationships today with Indigenous people and the modern Algonquin nation in Ontario. The trip involved paddling a large portion of Lake Opiongo, and needless to say, was a profoundly impactful experience, and is shaping how I am trying to approach my Algonquin Park storytelling from here on out. One of my first ahas was to realize the extent to which in all of my books and podcasts, there's nary a mention of any Indigenous people. More importantly, when there was a mention, it was more often than not framed in a negative light. Now, some of this is due to the stereotypes of the various times and the then reigning colonizing philosophy of Europeans. But there was also an interconnected belief 
which I've touched upon several times in various podcast episodes, namely that the forests, fur-bearing animals, and other natural resources were endless, and there for the taking by the inventive and the hard-working. I'm hoping that you can hear at least a little bit of sarcasm in my voice as I try to beat back the bias that only the new settlers or colonizers could have been the ones who were inventive and or hard-working. It will take some time to correct my record, but I am determined to start now with this history of a great Apiango Lake. Now, I'm not totally sure how this will all work out in this episode, but my fingers are crossed. But please feel free to reach out and let me know how I do. Over the years, my paddling experiences on Apiango have been a mixed bag. A couple of times, as a Camp Wapameo camper, paddling the North Arm from Happy Isle Portage was a dream. In other words, calm, flat water and glorious sunny days. But as an adult, I had a couple of horrible experiences trying to cross the East Arm that left me exhausted and swearing that I would never, ever, ever again venture on its waters again in a canoe, only by water taxi. As a result, I was very nervous about venturing again upon the lake, wondering if its legendary spirits would confound me again. To no surprise, nature intended that this trip was to be truly experiential. Heading north up the south arm and into the east arm on Friday mid-afternoon, we experienced just what James Wilson, superintendent at Queen Victoria Niagara Falls Park, had noted in his 1894 report to A.S. Hardy, the then commissioner for Crown Land. Note that Hardy had been a major player in the creation the previous year of Algonquin National Park. As James Wilson said, the great expanse of water gives scope to the wind so that frequently few minutes suffice to change the surface from the proverbial sea of glass to foam-crested billows, when the frail canoe must quickly find a haven of refuge or be swamped beneath the turbulent waters. Fortunately, the irregularity of outline already referred to usually affords an opportunity of shelter when storms arise, but escape is often protracted until the storm abates, as through all this territory the waterway is the only available route from place to place. For those interested, in episode 35 of my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments, I recount the details of this 1893 late summer, early fall trip. Luckily, on our canoe trip, we were able to reach Algonquin Outfitters by satellite phone, who delivered us safely to our campsite on Annie Bay when we hit very turbulent waters. On Sunday, on our way back, the lake was relatively calm and the wind was light. This made for a lovely paddle south and a marvelous lunch break at the Narrows. As I learned once again, it's best to approach Lake Apiango with a great deal of caution and respect as you never know what you'll get. However, to tell the story of Lake Apiango, it's probably best to start at the beginning. Located north of Highway 60 at Access Point 11, Lake Apiango is the largest body of water in the park. It runs about 15 kilometers north to south and about 14 kilometers east to west. Its total water area is about 5,154 hectares, and its elevation is about 403 meters, 
above mean sea level. It has three large arms, north, south, and east, that extend around a central narrows. Its deepest point at nearly 50 meters deep is in the middle of the south arm. As James Wilson went on to say, Great Apiango is very irregular in shape. It has numerous islands and presents many picturesque features. When seen in this way, in the hazy dawn of an Indian summer morning, its beauties make a lasting impression on the mind. From the north, it's accessible from Happy Isle, Red Rock, or Prue Lakes. From the south, it's accessible from Highway 60, along a roadbed that runs almost straight south from Spruill Bay. A little later, I'll talk about why that is. From the north end of the east arm is the Great Bonfield Dixon Portage, one of the longest, if not the longest, in the park, at 5,305 meters. From the south end of the East Bay, the main waterway flows out of Annie Bay to the Apiango River, which makes its way through a series of lakes to Victoria Lake, which is just outside of the park's boundaries. Now, for those interested in knowing more about settler colonizer life at Victoria Lake, check out my book, Governor Smith's Ontario Retreat, and Madawaska Hamilton Haskins' family, who kept it safe 1896 to 1957. From Victoria Lake, the watershed flows into a series of waterways via Bark Lake that eventually make their way to the Ottawa River. There is today a huge dam at the base of Annie Bay, which is all there is to keep the Northern Pike out of Algonquin Park and keep Apiango as the primo spot for trout fishing that it is today. According to the names of Algonquin Technical Bulletin Number 10, the word Apiango is believed to be derived from the Algonquin Apioingok, translated as Sandy at the Narrows, which is more or less a geological reality. I can attest that the beach there is awesome and a perfect lunch and nap spot as I mentioned previously. Alexander Sheriff, who was believed to be one of the first non-Indigenous persons to have ventured through the area in 1826, looking for possible canal routes to Georgian Bay, referred to the lake as Abayunga, or as commonly pronounced at the time, Pionga, and considered the three arms to form three Pionga lakes. I've also seen some references calling the Great Apiango Lake as opposed to Little Apiango Lake being what today is Aylan Lake. Apiango, car number 99, was also the name of J.R. Booth's private Canadian Atlantic Railway car that he used to take his family back and forth to the Fleck Barclay Estate at Rock Lake. For more on Booth's at Rock Lake, check out my book Rock Lake Station, Settlement Stories from 1896 or episode 21 of my Algonquin Defining Moments podcast. John Robbins, in his 1943 book, The Incomplete Anglers, noted that he'd seen the name Apiango referenced in an old logging shanty song that went something like this. Come, cheer up, brave boys. We plow and we sow and adieu evermore to the Apiango. However, Important to the story is that Apiango was also the name of the colonization road that connected the area to Farrell's Landing at the Ottawa River. We'll talk about this extensively a little bit later on. According to geological historians, when the last glacial ice sheet withdrew from the Algonquin Highlands some 11,000 years ago, 
The resulting meltwater spillway deposited sand through the east arm and down the Apianco River. Because of what we today call the Algonquin Dome, the highest point of land around and why we call it the Algonquin Highlands, traveling through it wasn't really the best way to get anywhere. The conventional route to get to Georgian Bay had been used by indigenous people for thousands of years. It involved travel from the Ottawa River, up the Mattawa River to Lake Nipissing, and then down the French River to Georgian Bay. Now, most of us learned in our childhood Canadian history classes that Etienne Brule was the first Frenchman to follow this route in 1610, and a few years after him was Samuel de Champlain. Now, for those interested in more details of Champlain's trips in this part of Ontario and in Upper New York State, I strongly recommend Chapter 3 of Adam Schultz's 2017 book, A History of Canada in Ten Maps. He describes in detail how Champlain met many, many groups of traveling Algonquin and Wendat, also known as Huron, parties as he traveled up the St. Lawrence and the Ottawa River from Quebec City. News of Champlain's willingness to rough it in the woods, my word, imitate indigenous travel methods and share the canoeing and portaging workloads, Adam Schultz's words, preceded him. This meant that by the time Champlain met Algonquin chief Nabashis in 1613 at Muskrat Lake, near today's Cobden, about halfway between Renfrew and Pembroke on the Ottawa River, Nabashis was up for sharing a peace pipe and becoming friends with Champlain. One of the interesting things to note is that according to Chief Kirby White Duck, in Chapter 2 of Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, at Muskrat Lake was a settlement who till the land and reap the maize, though Champlain noted that the soil was sandy and that although they planted some crops, they were still basically a hunting band. Later, Champlain reached what could be called a settlement of Algonquins at Morrison, and Alumet Islands in the Ottawa River, near present-day Pembroke. There he met, feasted, and smoked with a famed chief named Tessuat, who, though eager to make a pact, did not want Champlain to continue up the river. To discourage him, Tessuat advised that, quote, continuing on was too dangerous. The Nipissings who live there are a tribe of sorcerers who kill people through dark magic. How Tessuat knew that Europeans believed in witchcraft and weren't likely to, quote, totally dismiss native tales of the supernatural is hard to say. It may have been just a good guess, but either way, Champlain turned around and deferred his itch for more exploration to a few years later. According to Audrey Saunders in her book Algonquin Story, after Champlain's second trip, where he finally did make it to Georgian Bay, Maps of the area were, quote, compiled in Paris by the king's mapmaker, Sanson, in 1653. Across the Algonquin Park region of this early map is the phrase Grand Chasse de Cerf et de Caribou, a fine place to hunt stag and caribou. Over the course of these two trips, according to Chief Kirby White Duck in Chapter 2 of Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, in his journals, Champlain described at least six Algonquin bands in the Ottawa Valley area. A map created by Gordon Day and Bruce Trigger in their 1978 Handbook of North America Indians, Volume 15, Northeast, 
it shows approximately where the ancestral territories of these bands generally were. If you go to my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, you can see a copy of this map. Note that as stated by Rory Mackay in his second edition of 2016's Spirits of the Little Bonisher, the name Algonquin refers to the inhabitants of the Ottawa Valley at the time of Champlain. Algonquin describes a language family that includes Ojibwe dialects who occupied the Canadian Shield. The fortified village at Morrison Island is the only known settlement, as the Algonquins were, for the most part, nomadic peoples. Chief White Duck's chapter in Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, describes in detail artifacts found on Morrison Island, which I'll talk about in a subsequent episode. By nomadic, it is meant that though preference was to live generally along the main water routes, at certain times, groups would venture, as Saunders shared, further inland to replenish their stores. While there were no permanent settlements in the park itself, there were frequently indigenous groups in the park area." Unquote. It's hard not to imagine that in the warmer seasons, groups would congregate, likely near great fishing spots such as Lake Abiango. But in the colder seasons, they would split up into smaller, familiar groups and head to favorite wintering locations where game was likely known to be spending the winter, similar to today's deer yards, I presume. The park, also in the early days, according to Saunders, was an important source of birch bark, with great stands in the park district. This I know to personally be true, as every once in a while in my canoe-tripping travels over the years, I've come across the occasional most magnificent specimen of birch trees. Most recently, it was while bushwhacking a rarely used portage into Brulee Lake area. Besides making canoes, the bark was also used as a kind of roofing material for shelters, enabling a structure that could easily be set up and taken down in a matter of minutes, but a structure that wouldn't last hundreds and hundreds of years. There is, alas, unfortunately, no archaeological evidence as to where some of these shoreline fishing or hunting camps might have been. Some of this is due to the impact of the Annie Bay Dam. Estimated to have been originally built around 1867, the dam raised the water level of Lake Opiango by a good two to three feet, which likely has covered any frequently used locations. In addition, any wooden shelters and even bones would not have survived centuries residing in the acidic soils of the Algonquin Highlands. Though quite a number of sites, both indigenous and otherwise, have been identified in Algonquin Park, there hasn't been a lot of archaeological work done. But nearby finds suggest an indigenous presence as early as 9,000 years ago, during what is referred to as the Archaic Period. For example, in 2008, a hunter found a lance-shaped projectile point over 10 centimeters long with a rounded base and side notches near Maynooth which is about 15 kilometers from the southern tip of the park. As noted by Chief Kirby White Duck in The Human Impact, according to unpublished notes in 2008 by Joan Holmes, archaeological excavations in the Rock and Galeri Lake areas in 1939, 1962, and 2006 unearthed prehistoric potsherds and lithics, as well as 19th century material consistent with Aboriginal trade hunting, and farming activity. As noted in Shaw's Lake Opiango Untold Stories 
In the 1970s, archaeological studies done at Lake Opiango by W.M. Hurley and others found quartz scrapers, shards, and other materials scattered around the shores and islands, and possibly a quartz quarry on a small island off the west shore of the east arm. All of this suggests that indigenous peoples were traveling through and occupying, even if just seasonally, the Madawaska watershed and likely the Great Apiango Lake area long before Europeans were on the scene. It's hard to know what to say, so I'm thinking it best to take a small musical interlude for some mindful contemplation by us all. Note that I hope to talk in more detail about archaeology in the park with Rory Mackay in a future episode. So here's a track called Ancient Voices from Dan Gibson Solitude's 2013 Shimmer CD.
everybody, it seems, lived relatively peacefully until the 1640s, when the Iroquois moved north of Lake Ontario, likely in search of furs to trade for European goods. According to Trigger and Day, in their 1978 Handbook of North American Indians, Volume 15, Northeast, the resulting conflicts with Algonquins, Nipissings, and Hurons resulted in, by 1950, the almost total destruction of the Huron people and the dispersal of the Algonquins and the Nipissings. The Iroquois were eventually driven back to their upper New York State homeland by 1699, which enabled the Algonquins to start hunting again up the Ottawa River. However, having said all that, Saunders and Algonquin story suggests that, quote, the Iroquois did not entirely disappear from the Algonquin Park District until well on into the 18th century. Radisson and Grassier, radishes and gooseberry for some of us, their epoch-making trip was epoch-making because they were successful in making it along the water routes that were at the time being blocked by the Iroquois. According to Saunders, a 1720 map marked the Algonquin Park region as being Chasse de Castor de Iroquois, place of beaver of the Iroquois. However, according to Rory Mackay in Spirits of the Little Bonacheur, Alexander Henry met a group from Oka returning from their winter hunt in 1761. One presumes this must have been on the Ottawa River. So there was a presence by then. After the French were defeated at Quebec in 1759, the English crown felt a need to clarify how this new colony of theirs was going to operate and what its boundaries were going to be. This they did with a royal proclamation in 1763. A line was theoretically drawn from south of Lake Nipissing to the St. Lawrence River, landing near present-day Cornwall. Everything to the northeast was considered Quebec, and everything to the southwest that hadn't already been ceded or purchased was deemed to be, quote, reserved to the indigenous peoples as their hunting grounds, the several nations or tribes with whom we are connected and who live under our protection should not be molested or disturbed in the possession of such parts. Further discussion of the resulting land claims I'll share in a future episode. As far as Lake Opiango is concerned, Alexander Sheriff, who I mentioned previously, reported in 1831 the seeing of a trading hut that he thought belonged to the Hudson's Bay Company in 1829 at the South Arm. Though its exact location is not known, speculation is that it was likely near where, in 1903, a ranger hut was constructed on the shore just west of the Narrows. This we know because Ernest Machado mentioned in his diary that, quote, just behind the shelter hut were the remains of an old trading station or Indian fort. The fireplaces were plainly to be seen, and some grain which was growing near was said to have sprouted from the refuse they dug up from the hearth when clearing it out. Unquote. A sheriff also mentioned in his field notes how extensive the Algonquin territory was and made mention of an encounter on Cedar Lake with the son of Algonquin chief Constant Penese, who had established winter hunting camp quarters on the lake. The sheriff also noted, quote, the waters of the Nesawabic which they called the Petawawa River at that time, surpassed those of any other river I have seen in this country. 
As Saunders wrote, quote, he found the eels and catfish to be of a size rarely seen in the Ottawa River, and the lake trout, frequently as much as 40 pounds in weight, could be caught in great abundance both in winter and in the summer. According to research by Rory Mackay and reported in a September 22 article in The Raven, quote, independent, also known as petty fur traders, were operating along the Ottawa River tributaries as early as 1822, unquote. Indigenous hunters would bring their furs in from the interior and would trade either with the Hudson's Bay Company or with those petty traders, depending on who, quote, had the best prices and the widest variety of trade goods. In October 1824, Hudson's Bay Company trader John McLean noted that he'd learned there were Iroquois traders bound for Lake Lavier in the area, but he was unsuccessful in intercepting them. McLean went on to write in 1849 a book called Notes of a 25 Years' Service in the Hudson's Bay Territory that describes much of his time in the Ottawa Valley area. Some historians believe it was he who established the Golden Lake Hudson's Bay Post about 1825. Others, such as Saunders, attribute the Golden Lake Post founding to Charles Thomas, so it's hard to say. But according to McLean, an outpost on Lake Lavier became a regular destination for provisions and supplies, an outpost meaning a post away from the main one. The reason this matters is that the Hudson's Bay Company used to keep meticulous records about posts, but not for outposts, hence the inability to confirm what was or wasn't on Lake Lavier and when. It's interesting to note that John McLean also went on to write, quote, the company only permitted the sale of liquors to the natives when the presence of opponents, these petty traders, renders it an indispensable article of trade, as it is by this unhallowed traffic that the petty traders realize their greatest profit. I presume this means that the definition of widest variety of trade goods included whether or not whiskey or rum was in the mix. In September 1928, Hudson's Bay chief trader, John Sivelright, made mention that, quote, if petty traders Day and McGilvray were not sending men to Lavier or Pianga, then it will not be necessary for us to send from here. But one presumes that here means their post at Lac de Chat on the Ottawa River. All of this suggests that there was fur trading activity in the area of what later became Algonquin Park though Rory speculates that it was likely short-lived. This is because of notes by Siverite indicating that by 1828-1829, Day and McGilvray had withdrawn from the area due to financial difficulties and a lack of trading articles at their posts. This likely ended the need for Hudson's Bay Company to maintain outposts on Lake Lavier and Lake Abiango. In the end, though, the impacts of the fur trading frenzy of those days was horrific. According to Rory Mackay's Raven article, in 1829, John McLean went on to note that the hunting lands of the Algonquins are completely ruined, and later commented in his 1849 book that their hunting grounds are now nearly all possessed by the white man, whose encroachments extend farther and farther every year. The then Hudson's Bay Company governor, George Simpson, wrote in 1830 that the country in this neighborhood, and by neighborhood he meant the Ottawa River area, is becoming exhausted. 
and in the course of years hence, the natives must relinquish the chase and turn their attention to agriculture. Both, however, may have been referring to lands closer to the Ottawa River, as in 1847, Chief Kirby White Duck noted that timber limit surveyor Jay McDonald had met Algonquins in their camps around Trout Lake, which is modern-day Radiant Lake, and the north branch of the Petawawa River, where he tried to purchase a canoe from them. Another surveyor, James Dixon, who surveyed Ballantyne Township, noted that the Algonquins that he met during a survey of 1879 were very familiar with the waterways around Manitou Lake in the northwest corner of the park. It's unlikely, therefore, that these indigenous travelers wouldn't have frequently ventured into Lake Opiongo. As mentioned in previous Algonquin Defining Moments episodes, lumbering began on the Ottawa River around 1806 with Philemon Wright's first rafting of logs down to Quebec City. As noted by Rory Mackay in a December 22 Raven article, lumbering progressed, quote, westerly as a wave across the landscape, gradually displacing the Algonquin peoples from their traditional hunting territories. Though there wasn't any record-keeping until 1836, best guesses are that logging in Algonquin parks started in the late 1830s, as there's evidence that some lumber cutting was happening around that time up the Petawawa River as far as Lake Traverse. Unfortunately, as loggers made their way first up the Ottawa River and then up the Petawawa, Bonisher, and Madawaska tributaries, settlement farms followed to support the lumber camps. John Egan first appeared in the Bonisher area in 1836 when he purchased what was then called the Fairfield Depot Farm from James Wadsworth, who was one of the first to obtain a timber limit license in the area. By 1851, Egan had lumber operations covering some 71 timber licenses across 2,028 square miles, employing some 2,000 men. He also built sawmills, grist mills, and stores. Unfortunately, what also soon followed lumber operations was fire, which wrecked even more havoc on beaver and other fur-bearing habitat, and likely forced other game to flee. As noted by Chief Kirby White Duck, in Mike Walton's book Algonquin Park, The Human Impact, an 1840 Algonquin's petition presented to the then Governor General about 50 years prior to the creation of the park provides some indication of the effects of clear-cut logging operations in the Kitschisipirini Valley, now known as the Ottawa River Valley. That day is now arrived, which we never expected to see. Your red children, the Algonquins and the Nipissings, have never been in the habit of tilling the ground. From time immemorial, our chief and our only livelihood sprang from the chase, from the hunt, from which we secured abundances. Not so now, Father. Our hunting grounds are entirely ruined. Our beaver and other furs have been destroyed by the constant fires, and by the lumbermen entering our majestic forests. Our deer have disappeared. Our timber, amounting to hundreds of thousands of pounds annual, is taken from those very hunting grounds, which by our great father's order were to be reserved for us and us only, but from which we are sorry to say we derive not the least benefit. We are starving. Our women and our children are naked. It's also shocking to realize that as early as 1827, 
The government's Indian department was quite aware that the Algonquins engaged in what today we would call sustainable harvesting practices, as was noted in department correspondence at the time. Quote, their hunting grounds, which lands they look upon as their property, have been in possession of them for time out of mind. They say they've been nursing these grounds by refraining from hunting on certain parts of them for a year or two, so that the beaver and other wild animals may multiply, unquote. This sentiment was also echoed in an 1862 Algonquin chief's petition, which stated that, quote, the Indian whose hunting grounds is secured to him amongst ancient usages, according to his people, under the regulation of his chief, pays every attention to the increase, particularly of muskrat and beaver, while the white trapper invariably exterminate them, with the ecosystem completely disrupted and forever altered. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this adventure into the rich and complex history of Great Apiango Lake. In the next episode, we'll talk about the early days of colonization. For those interested, given that it is now taking me substantial time to research and write new scripts, I haven't been able to keep up a bi-monthly schedule. To help keep us together, I've just set up a chat group on the Discord platform for answering questions, sharing smaller stories, and general keeping in touch. Also, don't forget to check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, for all kinds of accompanying pictures, and the podcast episode notes for links to various websites and articles I've used. If you're interested in purchasing any of my books, they can be found on Amazon.com or at the Friends of Algonquin Park Bookstore, or, of course, by reaching out to me directly at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time...